0: This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends and technologies, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode we'll be discussing Return on Character, why the character of a company's leaders impacts its bottom line more than you might think, the difference between virtuoso CEOs and self-focused CEOs, and how to evaluate your own character and adjust it accordingly. Dr. Fred Keel joins us today to discuss those topics and more. Dr. Keel is the author of Return on Character, The Real Reason Leaders and Their Companies Win, which was published in April of this year by the Harvard Business Review Press. Return on Character is based on a research study of 84 CEOs at companies of various sizes in a wide range of industries. Dr. Keel is the co-founder and a principal of KRW International, a consulting firm committed to raising society's standards for great leadership by combining skills and character to drive results. Dr. Keel is an active ambassador for improving business success by starting with improving leadership. Return on Character summarizes his seven years of research into connecting the character of a company's CEO with the company's return on assets. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Keel. Uh, Happy to be here. Thank you, Will. Absolutely. So let's kick things off today talking about the study you conducted that forms the foundation for the book. Can you share with listeners a little bit of, a little bit about the background of the CEOs you interviewed for the research study? Well,
1: sure we, um, well let's, let me give you just a little bit more background on, on how the research came about. Um, i the author co-author of a book that was published in 2005 called Moral Intelligence. And in that book, my co-author and I claim that there are four universal moral principles that are honored by all people around the world. And we reason that if leaders were demonstrating these four moral principles, they'd get better long-term business results than those who don't. Um, you know, the principles are integrity, telling the truth, responsibility, uh, um, owning the consequences of your mistakes, um, forgiveness to the heart, forgiveness, and compassion. And we, we made that claim in our first book, and we got some pushback from a lot of positive results but pushback from one reviewer said you know you guys think that soft stuff is really important but what's really creates value is the business model and that you know if a, a business model makes a lot of money you know they'll be able to afford to hire great talent and all of that and all that culture stuff will fall into place and and even if it doesn't the person said that <clears throat> that it doesn't make all that much difference because it's really the business model that creates value, just as long as the management team stays legal. So all this soft stuff that we were talking about, they claimed was sort of frosting on the cake. Nice to have, but not really necessary. Mm-hmm. And then they challenged us and said, besides, you don't have any data to back up your claims that you're making. And that's what then spurned me particularly to move on and to do this research. So over seven years, we enrolled a little over 100 CEOs and their organizations into our study where we examined the connection between the character honoring these moral principles and bottom line results. And um, we ended up with 84 CEOs and or organizations with complete data, and which meant that we had over 8,500 employee observations on these 84 CEOs and their teams. And we've, what we found was really a dramatic uh, results. We found that the strong character CEOs and their teams, those that are rated by the employees as being of the strongest character, honoring these moral principles, brought in five times the return on assets to the bottom line as did the weak character teams and their CEOs. And they enjoyed a much higher level of workforce engagement and they enjoyed a much lower corporate risk profile. So that was sort of the big picture of our research.
0: And you talk about a a few different kinds of CEOs in the book, virtuoso CEOs and self-focused CEOs. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two?
1: Sure. We asked all of the employees in each of these organizations, we, we first of all asked for a random sample of 300 employees that we could send surveys to and asked them to rate how frequently the CEO and the senior team tells the truth, keeps their promises, owns up to their own mistakes, you know, acts forgiving and and curious and people make mistakes and finally show that people are treated as people, not as numbers. We asked their employees to rate them on that and out of that we were able to compute a single character index, a single score for the CEO and another single score for the senior team. And then when we rank order those, we got a nice big spread. We got the highest on a hundred point scale, the highest scoring CEOs and their teams scored up in the high 80s and and low 90s, and the lowest scores uh, to CEOs and their teams were down around 50. So those at the very top, we studied them, the extremes. We took the top 10 strongest character CEOs and their senior teams and and, uh, looked at how do they differ from the lowest character CEOs and their teams. And those at the very top, we ended up calling them the virtuoso CEOs. Those were the ones who their employees said they almost always tell the truth they almost always stand up for what's right they keep their promises they they uh, own up to their own mistakes they treat us with respect and and uh care treat us as individuals and as numbers and those at the other end of the continuum we call the self focused ceos the bottom 10 in our study and they were ones where their employees said well they tell the truth about half the time and of course the other way of saying that is that they lie to us about half the time <laughs> <laughs> and uh and that they were especially low on caring for people or treating people as people. They were people were clearly treated as objects. So when we looked at those two groups, we called the top-scoring group the virtuosos, CEOs and their teams, and the lowest the, as a the self-focus. And then we looked at all the differences between them, and one of the biggest founding differences was the bottom line. The virtuosos bring over five time, nearly five times to the bottom line, as do the weak character teams.
0: And I would imagine, and, and maybe this is not the case, but but I'd be curious to know if your research, you know, bore it out to be true, is one reason why those companies perform well is because there is less turnover amongst employees.
1: We didn't gather specific turnover data, but we know that, uh, for example, one of the virtuoso CEOs that we gave us permission to identify him and talk about him was uh, Jim Costco of, of uh, Costco Wholesale, one of the I think it's the fourth largest retailer in the in the world right now. And uh, they enjoy an incredibly high level of employee retention in the retail world, for for like checkout clerks and all of that. Fifty mm-hmm. percent retention after two years is considered to be a very, very high desirable number. Costco enjoys a ninety-two percent retention rate because people love working at Costco, and it's because of how they are treated by the senior team and by their managers. And of course, that flows downhill. The happy. Uh, people at Costco employees Costco treat the members and the shoppers in a very positive way. So you ask people give any you know, whenever I give talks I ask people sometimes to raise their hand if they're a Costco member and you get a bunch of the audience raising their hand. I say, How many of you have ever had a bad experience at Costco? and nobody raises their hand. People love going to Costco and it's because of the employees, how the employees treat them and, and the employees treat them that well because they're treated well by their own managers.
0: Sure. Okay, so let me ask you about the return on character matrix. It's a way that you provide uh, to assess whether a leader has moral character or not. Can you give listeners an outline of the matrix and the keystone character habits of successful leaders?
1: Sure. The, the character matrix is, again, these four universal moral principles that we discovered when we uh, examined the field of cultural anthropology There are sets of of human universals that cultural anthropologists have identified that that people all around the globe honor. Uh, Parents in all cultures around the world teach their children integrity, how to demonstrate it within their, their tribe. They teach them responsibility to own up to the consequences of their decisions and to own up to their own mistakes. And they also teach their children to be forgiving and and concerned for others and and compassionate for others. So there's four moral principles that are universal, human universals. You know, people all around the world, every culture, teach their children these integrity, responsibility is kind of two of the head, and compassion and forgiveness, two of the heart. And when those are in the four-cell box, we call it the return on character matrix, and it was... Uh, coming up with the behavioral indicators of those in the work leadership world that allowed us then to ask employees to rate the CEOs and the senior teams on the behavioral indicators of integrity, of responsibility, of forgiveness, and compassion. And we ended up with uh, 26 of those behavioral indicators and then combined those into with an algorithm and combined it into a single-character score for for the CEOs and their teams Um So the behavioral indicators are what uh, we call the uh, return on character habits. And they're they're the things that you might assume they would be. It's like telling the truth and keeping promises in the integrity box. It's owning up to your own mistakes and accepting consequences for (laughs) your choices and your your, uh, decisions that you make. And in the forgiveness one, it's uh, letting go of other people's uh, mistakes, looking for the positive rather than the negative, and in the caring one, it's showing interest in the development of other people and and treating them as individuals, as people, and uh, not as objects. So, those are sort of the keystone character habits that we talk about in the book.
0: And it sounds like a lot of it is just almost a, a kind of willingness to be to admit that you're human.
1: Yeah, you know, these are very, very much human characteristics. The thing is, is that we all live in our own bubble, and we all view ourselves as people of strong character. And when you ask other people to rate you, they may not agree that you have as strong character as you think you have. Some do, but uh, the surprising numbers don't. Of the 84 CEOs in our study, they all rated themselves as being up high on the character curve. And of course, when we get gathered data from random samples of employees, they found out that many of them were Rated 15 or 20 points lower than they had rated themselves. So, these um, character habits really are habits, and we all acquire habits as we go through our years of growing up, etc. You know, habits such as putting your foot on the brake at a stop sign. It's something you don't think about. It's just an automatic habit. In fact, neurosciences scientists tell us that about 95% of the decisions that Every one of us makes in the course of a day from everything from what to order to lunch to stop and how you drive to significant business decisions are not made by doing a thorough cognitive sort of intellectual analysis. They're just automatically made. They're, they're made as a matter of habit. And this is certainly true on how you treat other people, and people judge you, judge your character based on how you treat them. So how we treat other people is a, is a matter of habit, and often we are totally unaware of what we do that are, is viewed by other people as not being of strongest character habits. Um, it's hard for us to know what those ways of behaving are because habits f- for you as an individual are sort of beneath your, your level of awareness, and other people don't willingly come forward and tell you very often what it is you're doing that annoys them or puts them off people just work around it with other people or they uh, they choose not to associate with you, but rarely do they come in, in a helpful way and try to say, you know, if you would greet people when you're on the way down, walking down the hallway and, and give them eye contact rather than ignoring them, it would, it would mean a lot. People tend to think that you're angry when you're doing that or that you don't like them. Or, you know, if you wouldn't, when I'm talking to you and you're giving me eye contact, if you wouldn't then pick up your cell phone and start scrolling through and say, no, no, I'm listening, you know, um, that communicates disrespect to most people. Uh, and there's a number of these sort of micro habits that we uh, can exercise at work that, in fact, communicate to others that we don't care about them or that we aren't telling the truth or that we are certainly never owning up to our own mistakes and and all of that. And those are our weak character kind of habits.
0: So one of the, kind of sticking on that same topic, one of the biggest points in the book is that character is something that can be changed. You give six steps to follow to help someone change their character. So can you talk a little bit about those six steps?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, since your character is... is, um, based on how you treat other people, and, and those are habits that you get in into for how you treat other people. Because they are habits, they can be changed. But you can't change a habit if you're unaware of what your habit is. <laughs> so the first step in any kind of a change program is to what we call pop the bubble that you live in and to find out what your real character reputation is. People can go to our website uh, called returnoncharacter.com and there you can take a, <clears throat> an inventory of 65 questions that that when you answer them, it will predict if you were to ask other people to rate your character, here's how you might score. It's not 100% accurate, and it's certainly not as good as doing a real thorough sort of 360 survey where you have 30 or 20 or 30 people uh, anonymously rate your character and all of these character habits, but it will give you a... a uh, Directionally, a pretty accurate guess as to where you are on the character curve. Um, but anyway, so there's various ways of of popping the bubble. But um, the best way, of course, is to do a really a comprehensive, thorough 360 survey of people that uh, know you well enough to to rate how you treat other people. So that's the first step in change: is to become aware of well, what what is it that I'm doing that is viewed as not being a strong character. And then the second is to decide how important is it to you to change that. It might be that, you know, you look at that and you think, yeah, yeah, well, you know, I'm, that, that's other people can just learn to live with that. That's who I am. Or you might have the attitude that i said that, my gosh, I had no idea that other people viewed me in this way, and that is something I cannot tolerate. I certainly don't want to end my life with people thinking that I'm a person of low integrity because I do X, Y, Z. Uh, so... Keep finding the fuel to change is really important. How important is it to you? Um, you know, people can change long-standing habits dramatically and kind of immediately and overnight if they have enough reason to do so. A classic example is the young woman who who found out that she would tried to quit smoking for years. And years. She had the habit of, of smoking that she couldn't break, and she kept trying and failed and trying and failed until the days that she found out that she was pregnant. So suddenly having the fuel to change was being aware that she uh, was going to be a mother and didn't want to be a smoker and, and uh, treat her unborn baby that way. So finding the fuel to change is a really important part of it. And then becoming really clear about what does it look like to be a person who has changed this habit, either acquired a new habit or gotten rid of the old habit of how he treat people, to have that clearly in mind and and to understand what is it that keeps me from behaving that way. And those are on, often some sort of also hidden kinds of dynamics that, that operate that once you sort of put those, uh, identify those, it allows you to sort of disarm your security system and move ahead. And then finally, the but the biggest step is that you, if you're really going to change, <coughs> you need to go public. <coughs> you need to have the help of other people and, and do it in the context of, of people that you know and trust Supporting you and helping you and giving you feedback <clears throat> as you go on the journey to change, and you know, and habits, uh, especially you know, negative habits that you want to get rid of, uh, they aren't going to go away. Those neural pathways will remain in your brain till the day you die, but you can replace them with others. But at times of stress, you're more apt to, to fall back into the old ones. But, you know, being aware of that and uh, having other people who care for you, you know, remind you and say, you know, you've been really doing great on this, but I noticed here, you know, now that we're in kind of tough times, the last couple of weeks you've been falling back in your old old habit. you know, good friends will serve that, that uh, feedback loop for you and uh, people in your family will as well. So that's sort of the pathway is, is, you know, becoming aware of what you need to change, deciding that you really want to change it, uh, figuring out where the barriers are that maybe keep you in your old patterns, um, and then going public with it and asking for help and support of other people.
0: And you write in the book about the, quote-unquote, integrated human model. Can you mm-hmm. explain what the what the model is and share with listeners why you think it's necessary to make an update to our view of human nature?
1: Well, yeah, the um, economic classic economic theory is built on a view of human nature that is patently inadequate and, and is actually false. It assumes that every human in, makes economic decisions by being totally self-interested and that they make them in a totally logical way. And the whole field of behavioral economics has sprung up around this to counter that view of human nature. And in our book, we make a pretty compelling uh, statement for a more, much more nuanced and complex view of human nature based on the recent neurological neurological findings and, and findings in the field of genetics but all human beings are not born with a desire to be totally self-focused or are born with equipment to be totally logical instead you know uh the human infants are born with a a set of drives that are there they're set they're born with a set of drives to bond with other people they're they're born with a set of a drive to acquire things that give them feelings of safety and security. They're born with a desire to comprehend or to understand their world around them, to seek meaning. And they're finally, they're born with a drive to defend themselves. And when those drives are, are there in the human infant, it's sort of like a software. And as that gets activated through experience and people grow up, if those drives are kept in balance, then they become much more of an integrated human being. They become a human being where where all of the sides of their personality and their drives and their their character all becomes one integrated whole. People that are viewed as being integrated human beings uh, most often have a pretty high level of self-awareness, and they also have an ability to tell their life story in a coherent kind of way and uh, are able to to, uh, have a real awareness of what impacts uh, earlier life experiences has had on the person that I am today, and, and the l- impact it has on my leadership behavior. So we're just making the case in the book that a much more much more is known about human nature now than was known a hundred some years ago when classic economic theory uh, embraced this model of human nature, and it's really time for the field of economics and and leadership field to update that view.
0: Okay, and and one of the most surprising things that your research uncovered is that a person's individual political and religious beliefs don't influence how they run their business. How are these well, beliefs wouldn't separate? not I
1: didn't quite say it that way. What okay. I said is that when we sort, uh, we collected data about how each of the CEOs voted, and these are all North American CEOs for the most part, so we asked them how they voted in all of the past uh, presidential elections, and, and all of these CEOs, almost all of them voted all the time, and there was a certain subset of them that voted Republican 100% of the time, and there was another subset that voted Democratic 100% of the time. And we also asked them for information on their personal lives about their religious practices, and there it turns out there was a subset of, of CEOs that um, claimed to have religious practices in their lives every week. They were very devout people in one religious faith or another, and there were others that were entirely secular that had no religious practices in their lives. When we sorted by those two dimensions, those that were uh, either Republican or Democrat and religious or non-religious, we found that, and then looked at the uh, level of workforce engagement, we looked at, at uh, return on assets, there was turned out to be no differences. So it was not, neither religion nor politics was a factor that seemed to have any impact, particularly impact on business results. And of course, you know, on this we didn't have data on this, but when you look at the at the news, you realize that it does have, can have a major impact on business results. If the CEO talks about it, uh, if the CEO begins to express religious or political beliefs, by definition, they're probably offending about 50 percent of their workforce. <laughs> so it's a smart thing to to keep quiet. But I I don't go out and I couldn't go out and find or find data. I think that would show that religious um, CEOs devout practicing CEOs get better business results than non-religious ones. Nor can I show any differences between Republicans and Democrats in terms of business results. It's their behavior that counts. So there's high-character Republicans, there's high-character Democrats, there's low-character Republicans, low-character Democrats, and likewise with regard to religious practices.
0: And then there's Donald Trump.
1: (laughs) Donald Trump is uh, (laughs) the... He's, he's off the charts <laughs>
0: with
1: regards to my study. I have no data on him, but I, there are very few public figures I would feel comfortable commenting on, but I think he has so demonstrated that he is nearly psychopathic in nature and narcissistic that, uh, you know, he's, he's a joke.
0: He's, yes, he is. Uh, I'm sure he's an outlier uh, in, in any study that would ever be conducted on uh, corporate leadership. Yeah. Right. So, so, moving on from the Donald, um, you give four key leadership skills that you believe aid in character development and in implementing this character throughout organizational decisions. Can you talk about those four key leadership skills and why they're so important for CEOs? Yeah, right. The um, CEOs
1: are. Um, the people who create vision for where the company or the organization is going to go, they're the ones that that um, are, the, are the vision makers. And every organization needs to have clarity about where are we going. And that's what gives people purpose and meaning in life, is to have a vision that they feel they can embrace. So creating the vision is the first really important skill. The second one is, is yeah, we have a vision is great, but if it isn't boiled down into a focused strategy, uh, strategy or, or three or four key initiatives that we call strategic focus, then you won't be able to channel all of the energy that an inspiring vision can release without having it channeled into key initiatives. And then after that, you need to be a, a person who creates a culture of accountability. It's very important that that uh, people are held accountable. People often mistake and think that when we talk about having compassion on the part of a leader, that that's soft and mushy and all of that. Believe me, the virtuoso leaders were very compassionate, caring for people. people, At the same time, they were very driven to achieve bottom line results and were, were very quick to hold people accountable and to say, you know, you promised, you know, that, you know, on Monday you would deliver XYZ and it's now Tuesday and you haven't, what's up? They don't do it in a punitive blaming way, but they they made it very clear that <clears throat> these organizations were focused on getting results and that people are held accountable. And then, then the uh, uh, fourth and most important or very important uh, skill of a CEO is to select and lead a high-performing team. In order to be classified as a virtuoso CEO in, a <clears throat> in our study, you had to also have a virtuoso senior team. We had three or four CEOs in the study that they themselves got very high character ratings, but their teams didn't, and we did not consider them to be virtuoso CEOs. Virtuoso CEOs um, immediately, in early in their tenure, select a senior team of people that share their same beliefs and values and, and behave in these same high-character ways. And then once you you know have agreement on that, then it's a matter of, of uh, skill in leading the team, mm-hmm. making sure the team is really clear about their purpose and goals, and making sure that they are clear on their responsibilities so that there's no role conflict between the team members, and then finally having a team that, that agrees on the norms of how we work together, how often we meet, how decisions are made, what's confidential, what isn't, etc. and then finally, high-performing teams are ones that have a lot of deep respect and mutual trust for each other and they have Uh, interpersonal relationships where they will challenge each other frequently. So these are the four sort of keystone leadership uh, skills of a virtuoso CEO is to create a compelling, inspiring vision, to uh, uh, create a strategic focus for the organization, to establish a culture of accountability, and to select and lead a high-performing team.
0: And it sounds like there may be another round of research happening for a new version of the study. Is that right?
1: Well, it's not a new version of the study. It's, a, it's now, now that we have demonstrated that there is this great impact on the bottom line um, based on the character reputation of the senior team. Now we are, are signing up uh, organizations to join us in longitudinal research where we will establish at the beginning a baseline of how the team is viewed in terms of their character reputation, but also how the workforce views their skills, their set of skills, and how the workforce views the uh, conditions that they've created for workforce engagement, and then we also ask the team itself to rate how well they match up to this model of a high-performing team. We call it the team dynamics assessment. So once we assess these four things as a baseline, then we we give all of that data to the team leader and discuss with them and suggest here's if you're scoring lower than you thought you were that you would like to be on the character curve, um, we help them put together a a plan for how they can move their raise, elevate the uh, reputation of their team's character and thereby increase the perception of their skills and all of that and bring more value to the bottom line. We help them put together that plan. Then we back out of it, and in six months we come back in and just do – collect information on what is it that they have, as a team have done to make the changes and move in this direction and document that. And then at the end of the year, we'll do a reassessment and document where they are now on the character curve. Did they move up? We want to get data in uh, all of the different markets that we're operating in. We're uh, putting together, we want to get 50 teams signed up for this research in uh, not only North America but also in the UK, Germany, France, Asia and Latin America. So that we and as we expand it even beyond fifty, uh we hope then to be able to segment and and benchmark by uh sector as well as by market. So uh, we're we're moving on to that and uh and if any of your listeners are interested please contact us on our website. We would love to uh engage in the sign up Teams. It doesn't have to be the CEO team, it could be the head of a, a team of a marketing function or it could be the chief financial officer and their team. Uh, just teams and organizational life are, are there and, and uh, Character is such a major impact on how well a team gets the results that they're after for their function or their organization.
0: Okay, nice. And that's at the Return on Character website, right?
1: Yes, yes. They can uh, there's go through on the website and contact us and sign up for research or just use our website address and, and email us and we will contact
0: you. Okay, great. Well, Fred or Dr. Keel, thanks so much for joining us today. Great talking with you about the importance of character and how we can all grow to become better people, both in business and in our own lives.
1: You're very welcome, Will. Thank you. It's
0: an honor to be on your show. Absolutely. If you'd like to learn more about Fred Keel, you can follow him on Twitter at @fkeel. That's K I E L. If you'd like to learn more about his book, Return on Character, you can visit the book's website at returnoncharacter.com to take a personal character quiz, download a free excerpt of the book, and much more. You can also visit the KRW International website at www.krw. Dash intl.com and you can join the conversation about the book on Twitter using hashtag RO character. Thanks once again to Dr. Fred Keel for joining us this week and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in into next week's episode when we're excited to have the artist formerly known as Chunk. That's right Jeff B. Cohen who played chunk in the 1980s hit film The Goonies will be on the podcast. Jeff is now an entertainment lawyer in Hollywood, and he's written a book called The Dealmaker's Ten Commandments, 10 Essential Tools for Business Forged in the Trenches of Hollywood. We'll have Jeff Vaughn to talk about the art of deal making, why knowing the nuts and bolts of wheeling and dealing is an important skill for anyone in the business world today, why you should ask yourself, so what, every time you feel stuck, and how you can use a motivation mosaic to understand all the different angles that may eventually impact whether or not a deal gets made. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by 3Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com.